This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Welcome to Puto Politics, the political podcast of the San Antonio Express News. My name is Gilbert Garcia, Metro columnist, and I'm joined by... Kerry Clack, columnist, editorial board member. Metro editor, Greg Jefferson. And uh, we're a week into uh, city voting, and uh, next week we're gonna have, we'll have a, a recap for you on the, on the results. The election day is, is Saturday. Uh, but there's a lot happening at the state capitol. There have been more than 8,000 bills filed uh, this year during the state legislative session. And the city of San Antonio has been tracking uh, roughly like 1,500 of them. And to help us make sense of what's going on here, uh, we have Assistant City Manager Jeff Coyle. Thank you so much, Jeff, for taking time out and 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 helping explain what you all have been looking at and how it could affect sure. San Antonio. I appreciate it, Gilbert. Thanks. One bill that I know concerned you all uh early on, and we'll talk in a minute about where things stand with it. It was, is a SB 1110, which came from Senator Charles Schwartner from Georgetown. And I think he was motivated by the fact that the city of Austin, um, like San Antonio, they have a municipally owned electric utility and they had, um, uh, a recent rate increase there. And I think he was looking at the fact that, uh, they share their, their utility shares a percentage of their revenue mm-hmm. with the city of San, of Austin as as CPS Energy does in San Antonio, and so if you could talk a little bit about what his bill was designed to do and why um, it was a concern. Sure, it uh, the bill basically, and this was it's important to set the context. This was by a, a powerful senator who chairs the committee mm-hmm. that the bill went to, mm-hmm. so it it was elevated. You know, right from the start, mm-hmm. um, it would have prevented a municipally owned utility like CPS Energy or Austin Energy or 70 others across the state from transferring any portion of their revenues to the municipality. And the argument was uh, that cities shouldn't be able to have a piggy bank with their utility that they're tapping for whatever they want to spend it on. Um, the reality is whether you're a public or a private utility in the state, you're going to route some of your uh, net proceeds to your owner. And in, in the case of San Antonio, the city was smart uh, 80 years ago to have bought its electric utility. Um, we collect up to 14% of uh, revenue. So 14% of CPS's revenues 
come to the city. That's after operations are paid for, debt payments are made, money is put into the capital reserve. And then if there's funding left over, it gets transferred to the city. It's in lieu of um, property taxes. If it were a private utility, they'd be paying property taxes for all their real estate. It's in lieu of um, right-of-way fees, same thing if it were a private utility. And it's a return on the investment that our community made. And so that money, instead of going to shareholders uh, on Wall Street or or wherever, as they would with a private company, it comes back to the city and gets invested in the community, pays for streets, sidewalks, police, fire, everything the general fund does. Um, It's about uh, a quarter of our entire general fund revenue. So we were looking at a massive, massive hit. About 400 million. Almost 400 million this year. Right. So we were greatly concerned about it when it, when it got filed, but to your opening point, it it really wasn't aimed at CPS. Right. It didn't matter who it was aimed at. (laughs) Because it It would have affected us. Right. Right. Yeah. But we had a, we, uh, it had a hearing, um, uh, a good hearing, I thought. Uh, ben Gorzell, the city CFO, explained some of what I'm telling you and, and more. Um, Chamber of Commerce was up there yeah. saying this is really good for our business environment. The military, uh, Joint Base San Antonio's commanding general, wrote a letter, not taking a position on the bill, but saying mm-hmm. CPS is a good partner. The military is actually CPS's largest customer. And so ultimately, I you know I can't speak for the chairman of the committee, but the bill didn't move yeah. after that March hearing. And I want to believe that he heard all these arguments and understood uh, mm-hmm. how important it was to us and didn't want to hurt San Antonio and CPS in the first place. Did he say, any, did he say anything during the hearings that gave any indication? That- he did, yeah. He, he said he, he didn't want to pre- prevent uh, uh, transfers overall. He just wanted to prevent excessive transfers. And, and how you parse that, I don't <laughs> yeah. know. I mean, so his bill, but in his bill, he said, okay, uh, no transfers if it will result in... Um, a rate increase, correct? Right. Right. Yeah. So, right. so technically, he argued that's not preventing all transfers right. only if all, it causes a rate right, increase. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's all built into the rates. Exactly. And then in the the second clause, it's it's basically like a two paragraph bill. And the second paragraph says, "Oh, by the way, you can also do no planning within your budget making as a utility for uh, a, a revenue transfer." Right. Which means you just can't do it. <laughs> right. Like, right. Am, am I missing that? I mean, because if you can't say, okay, we need to budget for a roughly $400 million revenue transfer in our, in our, in our next year's budget, you really don't have a budget. Exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. And you, going back to the private uh, utility model, mm-hmm. of course, a private company is going to build in the right. return that it gets for its investors, its profit mm-hmm. that's built into the rates that it charges customers. It's the same for us. Mm-hmm. Um, one, I think, really helpful argument. We didn't know this would be the case, you know, a year ago when when it was being debated. But the $50 million mm-hmm. that the city uh, that, yeah, that the city gave back to CPS shareholders, I think, weighed heavily because you'd never see a private utility do that. They would have taken that mm-hmm. $50 million as profit uh, and no questions asked. And so for, the, for there to be a public discussion and ultimately a decision to give it back mm-hmm. sort of reflected the community value of the utility. It was one of those times when uh, I really felt that the person who had authored a bill maybe didn't really understand the dynamics mm-hmm. Of the of the the situation and 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 when Ben was talking about some of these things, it seemed like this was new information to him because what I, I sensed was that Senator Shortner really thought, as you said, this is the 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 revenue that's given to the city by CPS Energy. This is built into the CPS mm-hmm. Energy model. You know, they they financially they're looking at 
at everything, and they're they're factoring in the fact that they're going to give fourteen percent or, or whatever the, the amount is. But he he looked at it as this is the city just they they just want to do all this wild spending, right. and they're taking this money from from their utility, and then where everybody else is going to have to pay for it with a rate hike. Right. Um, the the thing too that um, I don't I don't know if he considered, uh, and and I think you and I talked about this a while back. Is you know the, I mean the politics of it are such that city council members are usually pretty reluctant to approve rate hikes. And when they do, they're often, they often bring the amount down because they realize, I mean, they have to represent their districts and people are, are not usually that happy about that. that, that you, you nailed it because uh, if, if you were looking at it in the way that this, the perspective of this bill author, at least at the beginning, a city council would be motivated to just increase the rates because it's more revenue to the city. But that's not historically how it's been. CPS's last rate increase was much larger. You all mm-hmm. have reported all about it. Their initial ask was much larger than ultimately the council was comfortable approving. So it, the council serves as a check and balance in that, in that model. Um, and you know, the, the idea that, um, that it's excessive spending or what have you, uh, one of the things that our CFO Ben Gorzell did when he sat down at the table was pass out a, a chart that had been, uh, at the last CPS board meeting and it showed residential rates across the state and the two lowest were Austin Energy and CPS Energy. And in places in Dallas and Houston and Fort Worth, where it's a deregulated market Mm -hmm. and you can choose from any number of private utilities, they had higher rates for residential customers there. So I think that took some of the wind out of the Mm -hmm. argument that it's a a windfall for for a public organization like the city. And and, uh, fortunately, as you said, this this doesn't seem to to be going anywhere and and Senator Shorter might've thought better of of it, but I mean, what impact would this, I mean, this would have, we would have seen severe cuts in the city budget. Well, for context in, you know, the, the past debates over the property tax cap that we live under now, the Mm -hmm. 3.5%, those, that was an impact of, I don't know, seven, $10 million Mm -hmm. a year. We were talking 400 million a year with the utility. It, I, I think it would have been the most damaging legislation we had ever seen. It would have affected every, basically every area of our general fund. And either we're making massive cuts or we're increasing property taxes and other things to make up for it. So it wouldn't have been good either way. But but I will say this was, a, I think, a good example of the process working up there. The chairman heard the arguments That's and true. ultimately decided he didn't want to push forward with it, I think. Uh, again, I don't want to speak for him, but it hasn't moved and it's his committee. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're happy with so that. Have you talked with him since that hearing four weeks ago? Um not in the last few weeks, right at around the time of the hearing, yes. And his message was the same as what he said in public. He he wasn't trying to prevent all transfers, just didn't want it to be a unending piggy bank. Uh, and that it was mostly about Austin. Remember, it had just been on the heels of the last sort of winter event mm-hmm. where Austin mm-hmm. kind of fumbled a lot. Uh, and so there was, there was sort of a, a pound of flesh mentality, I think, going into the session for Austin Energy. And Often CPS uh, unfairly gets pulled into those debates. Mm. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D.
Well, one issue that I think is is, is an ongoing concern uh, for the city of San Antonio uh, is uh, HB 2127. This is from Representative Dustin Burroughs from Lubbock. And as I understand it, this really, uh, this is about local control, and, right. and which has uh, has been an issue that's flared up at, in Austin quite a bit in recent years. And this would uh, prevent cities from passing or enforcing any ordinances or orders or rules unless there's something in the, the I guess, the state, state code, code yeah, that, statute. That, that would authorize it. Um, can you talk a little bit about... Um, what the real world impact would be to send sure it's and it's a really complicated bill because of the uh vagueness in yep. which it's 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 written it it essentially says if there is a field which we assume to mean an industry or a practice if there is a field covered by one of nine state codes you know, books of statute so if there's a state uh, the, there's an ag code a natural resources code a finance code if there is a field covered by one of those codes then the city cannot regulate it unless given explicit permission mm -hmm. and so I, i'm not exaggerating when all of the cities across the state were spending weeks going through all the co state law and ordinances and trying to figure out where they're and you know one example i, I testified at that hearing and one example i gave is uh, heavy heavy truck drivers are licensed under the transportation code. We have ordinances that say you can't park your heavy truck in front of the airport or drive through the middle of downtown. So can we not regulate that anymore? And the the reality is there was no answer to that question because the bill is so it is not it's not clear. And the way the bill purports to resolve it is that any resident or business in the county, can bring a lawsuit against the city to challenge an ordinance, and then it would be fought over and ultimately resolved in the courts. So, so we're looking at, um, and if they were successful, uh, all court costs and fees and everything would go to the plaintiff. So there's, there's little, um, you know, there's there's little cost to the to someone to bring a suit potentially. Um, all of that said, I don't, I don't, I think the issue is not going to be. In day one, when if this bill passes, uh, a number of ordinances go away. There will be a few. Um, I think it's more about the future and when issues emerge and local governments try to resolve them, we're going to have to go to state law and look and say, well, has the legislature given us permission to do this? And if the answer is no, I guess we wait until the legislature's back in session 18 months later and and hope for the permission to be able to address an issue in our community. So it's it's effectively flipping home rule authority on its head. Well, that, yeah, it's interesting you say that because uh, I thought Andy Segovia during a council meeting when this uh, bill came up, I think he he put it well when he talked about the fact that, you know, we're a home rule city. We have home rule cities in the state of Texas. And under that, uh, under home rule, that means a, a city can pass uh, an ordinance or a rule, unless there's something in the state code specifically preventing it. And he said, this is, this was, is going to flip it so that um, you're going to be, cities will be prevented from, from passing anything right. unless the state code specifically allows for it. That's so, exactly right. Yep. Uh, that just seems like it's yep. rife with problems. Um, I, 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 we're, are, we're hopeful it doesn't pass, but I think it, it, 
it has an air of inevitability to mm-hmm. it. It has already passed out of the house. Do you have a sense of why people are so supportive? I know that there's been kind of a, a, a challenge to local control in recent years. But it's been framed in a simple argument in that, you know, the, the businesses shouldn't have to deal with uh, thousands of different regulations across all the various cities in our state. That's the argument that's been made. They call it um, uh, legislature having to play whack-a-mole where an ordinance pops up in a city that they don't like and they have to go preempt it. But when pressed on it, the only examples they really gave were the paid sick leave issue, which uh, has long since been decided by the courts. We don't have a paid sick leave ordinance in San Antonio or Austin or anywhere else. Um, and a couple of issues like like plastic bag bans uh, in Laredo and gas lawnmower uh, ordinance in Dallas. Um, generally, those kinds of issues get dealt with either by the legislature narrowly preempting it and, and prohibiting a local government from regulating, or it gets fought over in the courts and resolved that way. This is taking the opposite approach and, said, and saying, instead of having all those individual arguments, let's just blanket preempt the entire state, and uh, and then we won't have all these differences. And so there's also politics involved. The, the author of the bill is the chairman of the calendars committee. Calendars committee sets every bill for a vote on the House floor. So every one of the other 150 members who wants a piece of legislation to make it to the floor has to go through that chairman's committee. He's got quite a bit of leverage, in other words. Right. So the like the likelihood of people standing up to him and saying this is a bad idea uh, was not very high in the House. It's now moved over to the Senate, and we'll we'll see what happens. Where's the uh, where's the, this obsession with the uh, the state's encroachment of, on, on local control stem from? I mean. It seems like after, like after George Floyd, we had a lot of talk with when it comes to defunding the police. But right. does it go deeper than that? Is there a certain period where you can see where this became more of a uh, an obsession? This is yeah, you summed it up perfectly. It is it does seem to be an obsession. This is my sixth legislative session now, and it has gotten progressively worse over every session. Mm-hmm. Meaning the fight between states and cities. Um, I think it's pure politics for the most part. It's um, it's cities that uh, and and we up there are very nonpartisan. We're representing San Antonio, but the reality is the state leaders who are often conservative Republicans see the big cities that are often led by uh, Democratic, um, you know, nonpartisan but uh, more liberal leaders, and and it's become sort of a clash of ideas. And the irony though is that without Dallas, Austin, Houston, San Antonio, El Paso, Corpus, where would the state be? I mean, that's where all of the economic growth is. Mm-hmm. Um, it's what makes Texas uh, in many ways, uh, not not to disparage any of the smaller areas, but the, we have four or five of the top 10 cities in the country in Texas. And yet our state government is at war yeah. with us all the time. It felt like the non-discrimination ordinance 2013. I don't, mm. that, that seemed to be like a really big issue. I mean, I don't, I don't yeah. know that it was a turning point because I think this was probably happening uh, already, but I think that was one where you saw like a, uh, a backlash among. Interestingly, that's one that survived. Yeah. We're still allowed <laughs> to, uh, yeah. to have a non-discrimination yeah. ordinance here. But you know, this session we had, uh, not all these will make it fortunately, but we had bills preventing us from having height re- restrictions when a building is built next to another building. Hmm. Uh, we had um, ordinate, uh, bills that would have undone our noise ordinance, our short-term rentals uh, 
ordinance, um, just all kinds of land use issues uh, out in the you know outskirts of the city. We're just constantly fending off uh, just the ability for our elected officials locally to make the decisions that they think are best for our community. Do you get the feeling that there are local developers, for example, who are they? They sense a willingness you know, in, in the Texas legislature and the governor's office to, to take back more local control. So they're going to take advantage of that. Is that what's, is that sometimes? Yeah, there, there's definitely the the, the builders association and real estate councils and so forth. I will say though, generally they're, they're, they're reasonable to work with. Um, and, and and I'll come back to your question, but, um, you know, so many people look at, the legislature as, are you for this bill or are you against this bill? And 85% of the work we're doing up there is actually tweaking and changing bills so that they minimize their impact. We'll go up there and say, look, could, would you consider this language or that language? And and often we work with groups like builders and real estate councils and so forth, and they're flexible. But one good example, I think, is you know we have a housing crunch across the state and uh, housing developers. I, this isn't all of them, but as a general message from the housing industry, it's been, well, we need to dial back all those city regulations that are increasing the cost of housing. Mm-hmm. And so I see that as one of those sort of opportunistic, yeah, yeah. you've got a legislature willing to you know, slap the hands of cities. So let's try to dial things back and, and use the, the affordable housing argument Perfect. as our message. As you said, a lot of these these uh, efforts to limit local control don't end up passing. Do you feel, you know, looking back to the time when you started working with the city as compared to now, do you really, do, is there a, a real feeling that we just have so much less ability to govern ourselves in San Antonio than we used to have? Or, or is that not the case? It's been in, it's been in, um, it's been rifle shot thing. So it's been in certain areas. So we, you know, we can't annex anymore unless it's voluntary. So, so we don't, we're not growing our city limits unless a developer or landowner comes and asks to be brought in. Um, our, our budget discussion every year is shaped by the property tax cap. We can't grow more than three and a half percent. So that's our sort of new starting point, unless we were to take something to voters, which we, we haven't. So there are areas that have definitely been affected. Um, but it's not been blanket, which is why this whole discussion about HB 2127 is so groundbreaking. I, I think there's probably going to be a lot of debate if it does pass a lot of probably legal wrangling over over this whole issue and and what authority actually cities have. So that said, most of the time, I feel like our city council, you know, at this point in time, uh, knows what where it can address issues. And when they see problems come up, they they take them on. And it would be a shame to see that go away and have all of our decisions be made, you know, outside of San Antonio. Yeah. One bill that I that I think you all are are, are positive about and have, have been supporting uh, is SB twenty two twenty. Yes, I believe this comes from Senator Menendez in San Antonio, um, and I I know that it involves uh, like convention centers and 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 uh, venues um, and taxation. Could you talk a little bit about what what Sure. Yeah. Let's start with what the state, it's in the state's interest for its big cities to be able to host major sporting events or conferences, Mm -hmm. right? When we have the final four here in 2025, it's not going to just benefit San Antonio. It's going to benefit the state of Texas in a big way. So um, 10 years ago, um, a a law was put into place uh, to benefit only Fort Worth at the time 
that allowed them to create a zone around their convention center and capture the state portion of taxes that were collected at all the hotels in the zone. And so instead of that money going up to Austin to go into the state budget, it was rebated back to Fort Worth and used to build their Dickies Arena uh, downtown. Mm -hmm. And so some years later, Dallas got itself added to that. And, and this session, we're looking at it and saying, we're at a competitive disadvantage if we don't get plugged into this. We, we, we are going to need to expand our convention center at some point. Um, the Visit San Antonio will tell you we've lost four or five dozen major events over the years because of size limitations. Maybe arguably as important is our Alamo Dome is 30 years old at this point. It's going to need some major renovations if we want to continue hosting uh, Final Fours, for example. So, um, so we're trying to get ourselves written into that statute where, again, we would capture a portion of the state taxes that would otherwise go to Austin and allow them to be reinvested in our visitor facilities and industry here. So it's it's made it out of Senate committee. It's pending a floor a vote in the Senate probably this week. And then it's going to be a mad rush in the final month to try to get it through the House. What's your, what's your guess? I mean, does it look pretty good? I, it, it's hard. I, yeah. I, don't, I couldn't say. So I'll um, against it. The argument against it is cost. Every bill that has a cost to the state has a fiscal note attached to it. And so when you look, these are 30-year zones. So when you look at 30 years of incremental tax, state taxes captured and reinvested, it, it ends up being a big number. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's been some hiccups with this. The comptroller's office wrapped Houston and San Antonio into the same uh Fiscal note, which uh, it was originally a bill to benefit both cities, and now it's just San Antonio. So we're, we're paring it down and hoping to get it to a number that the legislature will bite off on. But that ultimately is the argument. It's really a hollow argument when you look at two big cities in Texas that already have the tool. It's uh, you, There's no justification for a policy that benefits some cities and not others. And Houston's the biggest city in the state. They want it the session. San Antonio's uh, second uh, ahead of Dallas, ahead of Austin, ahead of Fort Worth in terms of population. So um, we think there's no reason why we shouldn't have the same tool. And I think you said Barbara Gervin Hawkins is carrying it in the house. She's, uh, she's agreed to. I hope I'm not okay, uh, okay. preempting her. But, um, <laughs> there's so much preemption so, happening. I know. She, she's, on, uh, she's on Ways and Means, which is the, the taxing committee okay. that will hear this. And so we've uh, the mayor has talked with her, and I think she's excited and um, we have to, it hasn't gotten over to the house yet. Gotcha. So there's no formal sort of uh, sponsoring of it yet. So we just had uh, the expansion of the convention center really opened in what, 2017? I'm not sure of the yeah, date. Yeah, yeah, I think it was in. So what again is the justification for another expansion and how, how quickly is this? Continuing to along. compete for major events. I, I think Visit San Antonio would, Mark Anderson would probably be able to speak to it better, but we were uh -huh. up at the Capitol with him not too long ago and he was talking about a, a conference, um, ophthalmology conference, I believe, that hadn't been to Texas in 20 years. Mm -hmm. And we bid on it and didn't get in. I think it went to Chicago or Orlando or somewhere else. Uh, and it was a size mm -hmm. uh, of the of the facility mm -hmm. issue, the available space uh, for the size of the event. Mm -hmm. And so when you look at it from that, from a state standpoint, that's, you know, millions upon millions of dollars that went somewhere else and not here. Mm -hmm. So we, we want to be able to continue to compete for the big events and draw the, the 20, 30,000, 30 member mm -hmm. conventions here. And uh, that means continuing to, you know, expand and improve right. our facilities. 
Is the city at all uh, starting to plan for an expansion? We, that we don't have any specific plans yet. I think part of this idea was to uh, have the tool in the toolbox to be able to start to have that conversation. So there's, we haven't talked to the council about expanding. There's been no proposal on the table yet, um, but we know it's, uh, it would be much harder to do without um, this kind of tool in state law. Before we wrap things up, I want to kind of get your thoughts on something. This, this might not be one of the bills that the, that, uh, or issues that, that the city has been looking at uh, as closely as some of the others. But as you know, there's been this kind of a uh, uh, battle between Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick and House Speaker uh, Dade Phelan over competing sort of uh, tax relief mm -hmm. uh, bills. And uh, Lieutenant Governor wants to uh, increase uh, school district um Homestead exemptions from forty thousand to seventy thousand. I think it would be a hundred thousand for those sixty-five and over. And then uh, the the speaker uh, wants to, uh, uh, I guess, lower the appraisal cap yeah. to be from like ten percent to five percent. And uh, former President Trump has weighed in on it, and he's he's backing Dan Patrick's plan. And he said that he's referred to California Dade and his plan being a disaster. And the reason I was asking about it is because. My my guess is that because the lieutenant governor's plan involves school district taxes, it wouldn't have any effect on the city of San Antonio. But I wondered, and maybe I'm wrong about that, but I wondered if um, Speaker uh, Phelan's plan, because it does have a, an appraisal or affects the appraisal cap, um, is there going to be an impact on, on city revenue? And I wondered how you all are, are viewing that. There, there would be an impact. There would be an impact on every taxing entity. So, you know, if you look at your tax bill, there's the city, the county, the, the school district first. That's more than 50% yeah. of it. But then the city, the county, the river authority, the hospital district, all of them uh, set their rates against the appraised values of properties. Sure. Uh, so lowering the the appraisal cap, essentially the, the amount the appraisal can go up, mm -hmm. Um, would have an impact on us. We, we haven't been up there arguing against it yeah. per se. Um, I actually, and we do like the school homestead exemption because yeah. the school tax is the biggest part of your bill. Yeah. And if you can exempt that value, you're not artificially lowering the appraisal. You're just reducing the amount that gets taxed. So um, the the arguments, you know, the comment about California or what have you, I, I, the, the argument, there's a lot of business interests across the state that are against the appraisal cap reduction, because if you set appraisal values so low that they're disconnected from the reality of the marketplace, you're get, you potentially have property owners holding and sitting on their property because they don't want to sell it and then see the appraised value go up. And so the, the concern is that it might have an overall a slowing of the real estate market across Texas. Mm -hmm. So it's actually not governments and taxing entities that are fighting it. It's a lot of the real estate industry and others. Um, but w when it comes down to it, you know, we've always argued, especially in past sessions with the revenue cap argument on cities and counties, we've always argued that school taxes are the biggest portion of your bill. And that's the part the state can directly affect. So if the state's going to address that issue and bring people's bills down that um, we see that as a real, real positive think, for our residents. I think there's a more, uh, it's a more progressive approach, and it's not a word that's often uh, used in the same sense with Lieutenant Governor. But, but I think that if you're talking about, you know, seventy thousand dollars off a home that's valued, you know, uh, valued at one hundred forty thousand, that's going to have much more impact on that person than maybe the person who has a seven hundred thousand dollar home. And right. so I think that it, it can. Uh, I mean, I, I see the, the potential benefit in that. 
You mentioned that it, that the speaker's plan would have an impact on city revenue. Have you all been able to calculate how? No, I don't think we've run those those numbers yet. Um, and, and and part of it is because the appraised value is only half of the equation. The rate is the other half. The city council does have control over the rate. Now, granted, if it generates more than three and a half percent, you'd have to take it to voters. But even underneath the three and a half percent, there's there's leeway as to where you set the rate. So it's hard to calculate it now because ultimately our elected officials have the decision-making about where where to set sure. the rate. Sure. Well, Jeff Coyle, thank you so much for taking time out and talking with us. So we really appreciate it. I appreciate it too. I, I don't feel like a lot of people always know what's going on up at the Capitol and how much it affects us every day. So you guys digging into how's these this, issues is great. How does this job compare to being in a car that's underwater <laughs> and then having to fight your way out of for a news uh, He's yeah. bringing up uh, old TV news days. Uh, this job is much more fascinating every single day. No, no doubt, Kerry. Thank you, though. So... Thank you all for listening in. Hope you all get a chance to vote. And uh, we'll be back next week with a recap. And I want to say happy 90th birthday to Willie Nelson, yes. who turned, uh, who had his birthday on Saturday. Take care. We'll be back next week. <laughs> <laughs>